From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Restaurants can reopen their dining rooms tomorrow, but the experience will feel very different for everyone. I mean, servers aren't going to be as big of a thing anymore. We're all going to be helping cleaning the restaurant. What's on the minds of workers, owners, and are the new guidelines about profit, health, a mix of both? Then lawmakers return to the state capitol with an unenviable job closing a budget shortfall of more than $3 billion. Through Colorado Wonders, a listener wants to know how Tabor, the taxpayer's Bill of Rights, might affect a recovery. Well, it will touch some local governments more. They're making cuts that might have to become permanent because the ratchet won't let their budgets come back up. Plus, how another constitutional amendment could wallop schools. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Restaurants across the state can reopen their dining rooms starting tomorrow, but it won't be like old times. New guidelines came out over Memorial Day weekend. Let's talk through what eating out will look like with the president of the Colorado Restaurant Association, Sonia Riggs. We're also going to hear from restaurant owners and workers. And Sonia, welcome back to the program. Thank you. First off, do you know how many restaurants in the state have had to close permanently because of the economics? We estimate at this point about 400. 400. And is that a lot compared to normal attrition? You know, in in this short period of time, it certainly is a lot. It's, you know, and I think the, the bigger concern is as this pandemic and the, the um, limits on restaurant reopening continue, especially with the limited capacity, uh, we're going to see, I think, a lot more restaurant closures coming up soon. In fact, I'll say that um, we did a recent survey and nearly 10 percent of restaurants say that they'll consider closing in one month if they can only open at 50 percent capacity, which is what we're seeing right now. And nearly half that we surveyed said that they'll consider closing permanently within three months. That is to say that this slight reopening, this slight easing is not a salvo. Let me say that these new guidelines encourage still pickup and delivery. Beyond that, they favor outdoor seating. Indoor dining has to be at half capacity with a maximum of 50 people. That's if parties can be six feet apart, if employees wear masks, if there's ample cleaning. I know that some restaurants are eager to reopen, but do you have evidence that customers are ready to return to restaurants overall? You know, that's that's one thing we're certainly concerned about. I'm hearing um, that customers are, are concerned. So I, I suspect um, some customers are going to want to go out, as we've seen with some of these restaurants that have already been able to open. But um, that's a great point. I think, I think we're not going to see the type of business that we saw prior to COVID. I guess I'd be interested in those uh, listening if you are feeling comfortable with eating out, uh, whether you will take advantage of these new guidelines. Why don't you tweet us at Colorado Matters with your thoughts? I want to note that Denver Mayor Michael Hancock says, quote, uh, vulnerable populations should be strongly encouraged to continue to abide by more stringent, safer at home guidelines. That is, don't be eating out if you're at risk. Uh, In any case, El Taco Rey is a family-owned Mexican restaurant in Colorado Springs, and proprietor Judy Allen tells us that the six-foot spacing means they won't open their dining room. Our business is very small, so, I mean, we are going to have to stay open just for takeout because 
we, we just don't have the space for that. So we're going to have to stay strictly takeout. And at the same time, Denver chef and restaurateur Alex Seidel says there's no way he can open his dining rooms at 50%. We just don't have um, the money in our accounts to drain on labor to open up at 50% capacity. So we'll have to see how long that goes for. I've been encouraged by some other states that are trending quicker to 100% than I anticipated. So, you know, that's good to see. So, Sonia, do you think their experience is typical, or are you hearing from a fair number of restaurateurs who say, we can make that work? No, we're actually hearing from a lot that say that it just won't work for them. Um, in, in a recent survey that we did, about 20% said at this capacity, they just cannot consider opening. But I've talked with far more restaurateurs um, just kind of anecdotally, and they're saying, listen, we weren't we didn't set our business model to open at a limited capacity. We set up our business model to open at 100%. So, you know, we, we're grateful to the state and to many cities for saying that they'd like to work with restaurants where they can to expand patios beyond the traditional patio that they've had and work very quickly to do so. So that will, that will certainly help some, but others, it's, it's not going to help at all because it's just not feasible. They may not have that space surrounding their restaurant to even allow for that expansion on the patio. Um, luckily, we've got great weather, so I hope that there are a number of restaurants that will be able to take advantage of it. And in fact, I'm also hearing from public health officials that that may be a safer way uh, to go back to dining in is, is actually doing that outside. Yeah, Denver created a temporary outdoor expansion for restaurants and bars. What other communities do you know are doing something similar? I know that Aurora's talking about it, Boulder's talking about it, I think Westminster. We've heard a number of cities reach out that said that they're looking into trying to um, make that expansion as quickly as possible. Do I have it right that Colorado Springs is on that list as well? I think so, yes. Okay. Do you think science backs up these guidelines? Do you think profit is driving them? What's your sense? Well, I think it's a combination of both. I know in talking with public health officials, their number one priority is keeping people safe. So they want to make sure that the the research and the science is behind the recommendations that we're making. So, you know, for for example, you'd mentioned at the beginning of your show, you know, six feet, tables need to be six feet apart. People are going to be wearing masks. Um, You know, there are a number of precautions, including higher than standard um, cleaning. You know, restaurants are already um, trained, uh, uniquely trained to keep people safe when they're dining out. But, but um, it, to your point, it's it's so safety is obviously number one. But you know, we're looking at a really important industry to our communities and, frankly, to revenue that the the um, state and uh, municipalities bring in through tax revenue. Um, and it's it's you know not only do we want to keep these important businesses open, but it's a that tax revenue also goes to help the general public in the services that they receive from the governments as well. So I think it's a combination of both. And we know that governments are struggling economically. The state is struggling as lawmakers reconvene today to face a three billion dollar budget shortfall. Let me get quite clear, Sonia Riggs, on your stats here as head of the Colorado Restaurant Association. You are not lobbying for dining rooms to open at full capacity. I know that's what the economics must dictate, but that's not what you're saying, or is it? Correct. I mean, certainly we'd like to see that happen, but we also understand that there's a public um, safety issue here, and we want to make sure that—and restaurateurs that I— 
You want to make sure their employees are safe and their guests are safe. So we certainly, while, while we wish the, the COVID-19 pandemic would go away immediately and, <laughs> and we could get back to business the way things were, we understand that that's just not the case, okay. so, which is why we've been working closely with state and local officials on where can we safely expand in places like patios. I do want to focus on restaurant employees. Colorado Matters spoke with Whitney Page, a server at Recess Beer Garden in Denver. It's still a little scary to think about. Um, I come from a restaurant or a beer garden where before we even closed down, it was just insanity in there. And we are one of the busiest places in Denver, I feel like, in the summertime, especially with our patio and Hearing about all of these different things happening with other places reopening their economy and restaurants, I mean, I have parents who live here. I'm from here, and it's it's hard to know exactly what limits and what things I want to place upon me returning to work. I want to add that the guidelines say, quote, consider refusing service to customers who refuse to adhere to hygiene and physical distancing requirements. The key word there is consider. The guidelines don't say require. Uh, How do restaurants handle customers who don't want to toe the line? Well, you know, it, it's that that can be difficult. I've I've talked to many that absolutely will refuse service, but others, you know, there are some folks that for for a health reason, as we've heard, even seeing them go to the grocery store, may not be able to wear that mask. So I think they're going to try to do the best they can from what I've from those folks that I've been speaking to in keeping their their um, other guests safe and their employees safe certainly, but you 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 also. Um, won't, don't want to put them in a difficult situation or somebody especially that can't wear a mask for a prolonged period of time because of health risks. Um, you know, I, I will say this is where we would really like to push for the government to support restaurants uh, in, in this area and, and really make it clear to the general public that they need to do their duty to help protect other, other people around them uh, where possible. Are you saying you'd like more teeth in the state we, and we, local we would. rules? We'd like, the, we'd like instead of the uh, restaurants to have to be the policing uh, agency. We'd really like, um, you know, law enforcement and, and the government to step up and help with that. How much do you think worker health, we've talked a lot about customer health, how much do you think worker health played into the formation of these new restaurant guidelines? Well, I mean, worker health is certainly something that's taken seriously at any time, um, certainly more so now. Uh, you know, it's definitely something that was addressed. They're asking for daily check-ins with your employees on how are they feeling. Um, you know, are they are they feeling sick? Have they been exposed to somebody with COVID nineteen? So I think it's certainly going to play a part of this reopening. Another server, Nagin Mohi, works at Safta. That's an Israeli restaurant in Denver. She was furloughed, lost about half her income. She's back at work now because Safta is doing takeout. I'm a first-generation American, so working extremely hard has always been built into us. So, like, I don't think there's ever been really a time in my life where I haven't held down, like, three jobs at a time. It was kind of, like, just a whole bunch of fear. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I I just can't even begin to think about how many people are just, like, one paycheck away from being homeless at this point. So, for me, I just I kind of just count myself lucky. Even though, like, this is probably the worst time of my life, I just consider myself really lucky. Hmm. I I do know, Sonia, that a large share of servers' take-home pay is tips. Should they be worried about tips in this new environment? I mean, it just strikes me that the relationship between server and customer is going to be so different in this environment. 
It is. You know, and I think we would ask the public as they're returning to, to restaurants to keep that in mind, that servers are actually being asked to have less contact with their customers than they traditionally have. Oh. And, you know, with those masks, you may not be able to tell whether they're smiling behind them or not. <laughs> so, we're, you know, we're certainly hoping people will be generous. We have seen some remarkable cases of generosity during the full closure where people have been giving much bigger tips than they normally do or full tipping for takeout um, and delivery. So we certainly appreciate that. But, uh, you know, it, it's I think the bigger concern here is that if we're not having customers come back to the capacity that they were before, that's where we may see reduced tips and, frankly, reduced staffing levels. Right? People are not going to be rehiring like they were because yeah. they're, if they don't have the business and they don't have the capacity, they're not going to be able to bring as many people back. I have heard of restaurants rotating staff in so that they give yeah. a sort of even spreading throughout their staff. I'm very eager, Sonia, to ask you about that restaurant in Castle Rock, which flouted the rules and opened on Mother's Day. There was no physical distancing, no masks. One of the owners has said, if I lose the business, at least I'm fighting. And uh, she wound up losing her license. The fight is going to go to the courts because they're suing the governor and the state health department. Is that a lawsuit that the Restaurant Association condones? You know, we never um, encourage people to break the law. That's something that we that we believe in first and foremost is follow the law, um, you know, follow the, the health code guidelines. Please pay attention. There, there's a reason that I think the government has been, um, you know, doing what they've been doing. They're trying to keep people safe. So we always want to encourage people following the law. That being said, you know, I'm, I empathize with restaurants during this time because they're scared. They're, it's their life's work and their blood, sweat, and tears that's gone in oftentimes to opening these restaurants and, and feeling um, the, uh, so much uncertainty on whether you're going to be able to open and when has been very, very difficult for these folks. So I'm, I'm just really happy that the governor finally has made an announcement that restaurants statewide can open in some capacity. So we're hoping to see further lifting of restrictions throughout the summer, as we've seen around other states, obviously, as it's safe to do so. But, um, you know, they're, they're scared right now. So I can certainly understand, um, you know, wanting to take desperate action. Sonia Riggs, president of the Colorado Restaurant Association. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As we all navigate significant disruptions to our normal routines, Colorado Public Radio is deeply grateful for the central force of donors who continue to sustain the news and music we all rely on, CPR's Evergreen members. Your crucial monthly donations are the reliable support CPR can count on during these uncertain times. Evergreen gifts come in all sizes, and their collective impact is felt every day. Thank you for being a Colorado Public Radio Evergreen member. The state legislature resumes its work today, and it's experiencing what a lot of workplaces are, questions around safety and a dark financial reality. Public affairs editor Megan Verley joins us six feet away in the studio. Hi, Megan. Hi, Ryan. What does it look like at the Capitol so far? Are there a lot of safety rules in place? Oh, yeah. The images are striking. You've got people coming in in masks, getting their temperatures shaken. You've got lawmakers on the floor of the House, uh, mostly not entirely wearing masks, even though it is required, with these big plexiglass shields between their desks because they sit very tightly together. Mm. A lot of empty desks because some lawmakers have even offered to sit up in the viewing galleries to create more distance. It's a very different category. This morning. Are all lawmakers there or are some doing this distanced? 
You know, I'm not sure we know that entirely yet. There are not rules in place for distance lawmaking, but we expect those to be introduced today and be passed by the end of the week. And that would allow some lawmakers with significant health concerns for themselves or their families to do some work remotely. However, that is not without controversy. There are members of the legislature, particularly Republicans, who say that that is not doing the people's business the way it should and might even be unconstitutional. Fascinating. It really is like flying the plane as you're building it, figuring this out. I think that's how legislative leaders have felt about it. Yeah. And I know that cuts, budget cuts, are really the big focus and how to execute them. Exactly. There's a $3 billion hole. Uh, The Budget Committee has been working for several weeks to figure out how to patch it over. And the pain is very widespread, a lot in K-12. And some pretty radical ideas about how maybe to spread the pain in education around that we're going to see a lot of debate over in the next few weeks. What's an example of that when you say a radical idea? So there's a funding formula that allocates money to the districts, and it is weighted towards districts with a higher cost of living, Denver, Aspen. Uh, And it does not account for the fact that districts may pass um, higher local taxes on themselves, mill levy overrides, which a lot of people have probably voted for or against around the state over the years. Well, they're looking at maybe uh, changing the distribution formula for base funding to say, hey, if your district um, has a higher cost of living, you're not going to get that bump anymore. And if you have uh, pretty high local taxes, maybe you can take a bigger hit in state funding so we can support the districts that haven't been able to increase their taxes. But that, too, I imagine, will not be without controversy. They've been debating these ideas for a decade and haven't been able to agree on them. But uh, sometimes crises force an issue the way... uh, smooth sailing does not. Yeah, this does remind me of some of the conversations during the Great Recession, for instance, right around schools. What blows my mind, I went through the Great Recession. Those were really, really hard conversations. The hole right now is three times bigger. I have been editing stories on this for weeks, and I I still can't wrap my head around it. Beyond the budget, what do you expect lawmakers to tackle? There was a lot put on hold, of course, before session paused. Uh, All sorts of health care measures, things like that. What do you expect to see? So first, we're going to see a lot of bills get killed off right away. They just don't feel relevant. They're not a priority. They're Mm. not a thing the legislature wants to work on. They're just going to, lawmakers will kill their own bills or have them voted down swiftly in committee. Uh, We will see some new bills, though. Both parties have ideas for how to deal uh, with the pandemic and how to try and help the state through it. Republicans have a lot of ideas around helping small business. Democrats unveiled their agenda this morning, and they're talking about things like requiring companies to offer paid sick leave uh, and other uh, measures that they think can help workers and uh, help the state through this. The idea being that COVID-19 is still central to many of the legislative discussions. Thanks so much to Megan Verlee, our public affairs editor. She also edits Purplish, CPR's political podcast, which drops every Thursday. Libraries are often the only place someone experiencing homelessness can access the Internet. With libraries still closed due to COVID-19, many people are without a way to connect. So should libraries be considered an essential service? CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sagas explores that question. Outside of the Denver Central Library and Civic Center, Tim sits in the grass. He didn't give us his last name. He's got his backpack, hat, and sunglasses, but his phone went missing a week ago. Sometimes it's hard to keep a phone when you're, you know, on the street. You know, they get lost and stolen quite a bit. It's also hard to keep a phone charged. Tim says he'd usually go to the library to do that, which he relies on to stay connected. And I check my emails, my Facebook. Um, that's the best way for me to stay in contact with my family because most of them are in New Hampshire and uh, Florida. 
He also misses the books, the magazines, the people, and the community. It's been nearly two months since Denver's libraries closed, and Tim says it's made life a lot harder for him. I really would like to see the library back open as soon as possible. I don't understand why it's still closed. I think that it's just as essential as anything else. The Denver Central Library plays an unofficial role as the city's largest day shelter. Alyssa Hardy is the library's community resource manager. She leads a team of social workers and peer navigators who support unhoused people by connecting them to food and housing or helping with job searches. She's worried for those who can no longer come to the library to get that support. Our team connected with about 300 to 350 people each month. And since we've been closed, we've had about 100 contacts just via phone with the customers we had relationships with who had access to a phone. Those contacts have slowly continued to decrease, though, over the weeks. In an attempt to reach people, the library's main phone number is acting as a hotline to connect with both librarians and social workers. But Hardy says the team has only heard from a few folks this way. The library is trying to keep people connected by leaving the building's Wi-Fi on. Hardy says the city should find ways to get unhoused people reliable access to the Internet as the pandemic continues. Do we need to look at communities that have available Wi-Fi that's free to everybody? Do we need to figure out ways to make sure people have phones or laptops or Chromebooks or whatever it might be so that they can connect It's an idea that seems especially important right now. Thousands of Coloradans have lost work, and internet access means the ability to file for unemployment, look for a new job, apply for state and federal services, and secure a stimulus check, something Tim hasn't figured out how to do without the library. We noticed that was a need with our community because they didn't really have access on their phones, and they didn't have access to the library. That's Lisa Rayville, executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center, which runs the city's clean needle exchange program. She's heard from a lot of people who aren't able to get their stimulus checks. So the center scheduled one-on-one appointments to help, 60 so far. With the libraries closed, she's concerned there are a lot of unhoused folks who haven't been able to secure federal aid. That was a true need that we started finding for the larger unhoused community because it was such an online process. The Colorado Coalition for the Homeless has loaned out more than 400 phones so people can make calls and have some Internet access. Kathy Alderman is with the coalition. She's worried that without libraries, unhoused people can't stay informed about COVID-19. They don't necessarily know that there's been an order to wear a mask. So I think libraries can actually serve as that kind of resource by notifying folks that are kind of cut off from everybody else of newsworthy events and public health orders. Alderman says the shutdown has also made it challenging for folks to complete the 2020 census. We're doing, you know, as much phone calling as we can and trying to do public education. But again, if people, you know, aren't connected to the Internet, they're not getting regular updates, this information just may not even be getting to them. St. Francis Center, one of Denver's largest day shelters, saw a 25 percent increase in visitors when spaces like the library first shut down. There's no computer access there. Usually, if someone needs to use the Internet, the center points them to the library. Midori Higa is the center's director of social services. She says with the libraries closed, more folks come in frustrated, looking for help. How am I supposed to do anything if I can't go to the library? I don't have a computer. So they initially come in pretty upset because they know that they don't have that resource anymore. Higa is concerned about the long-term impacts of unhoused people going months without a reliable place to get online, especially when a virtual connection is a lifeline for many in a socially distanced world.
I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. And the governor is expected to make a decision on when libraries can reopen after June 1st. Coronavirus and the subsequent lockdowns have taken billions of dollars out of state and local budgets in Colorado and all over the country. But here, governments have to navigate a unique layer of complexity, the Taxpayer's Bill of Rights, or TABOR. Ian McGinnis asked through Colorado Wonders how that state constitutional amendment could affect government's ability to recover. Ian, you are a software engineer. And of all the questions you could have asked about coronavirus, what got you thinking about this one? You know, I've stumbled across uh, Tabor a couple times in the news, and uh, no, it's a pretty unique budget constraint for Colorado. Unique indeed. And uh, to answer your questions, Ian, we're going to bring in CPR's Nathaniel Miner. He was part of the team that brought you the Taxman podcast about the really fascinating history of Tabor and the man behind it. And Nate, thanks for being with us. Hey, Ryan. When Ian says that Tabor is unusual in the country, he's not wrong, is he? He's not, no. Among amendments that uh, really limit what government can do and how fast it can grow, Tabor is the most restrictive across all 50 states. And just a brief rundown here, it was passed by voters in 1992. Uh, Back then, there was a real fervor, a real desire among constituents to just have more control over government. And that's what Tabor does. It kind of takes power away from elected politicians, gives it to voters. And that's, that's, you know, fundamentally changes government. But some specifics here, it limits how quickly government budgets can grow. Anything beyond a certain limit is returned to taxpayers. Um, It requires a public vote for all new taxes. And it applies to every government in the state. So from the state government in downtown Denver to, you know, a, a water district out in the western slope somewhere and everything in between. And Ian, you're thinking about the economic hit that governments have taken and thinking, is Tabor going to affect their ability to rebound? Am I framing that concern right? Yeah, definitely. I know the state has a large hole in the budget now and certainly curious to learn more. Three billion dollars or more at the state level. Okay, let let's see if we can stump Nathaniel Ian. <laughs> what are what are some of the questions you have specifically about Tabor's relationship to recovery. Sure. So I know Tabor has some sort of a ratchet effect. What does that mean for the state? Tabor's ratchet effect doesn't actually mean much at this point at the state level, and that's because it it doesn't exist anymore. So Tabor limits how quickly government can grow, like I mentioned before. And at the state level, it's linked to population and inflation. And originally, when Tabor passed, the state could only grow by that much over the previous year's budget. And the ratchet refers to what happens when the budget fell in a recession. So let's say it dropped from $10 billion one year uh, down to $7 billion the next year because of a recession. In the year after that, let's say the economy kicks back into gear, tax revenues come back in. Well, Tabor says that the state budget can only grow by a little bit. So it can't go back to $10 billion. It has to stay around 7 maybe $7.5. And, and it, it would take years and years to get back to that $10 billion. And Meanwhile, the rest of the economy is doing great. So it's a little bit complicated, but essentially the ratchet was designed to shrink the size of government in relation to the rest of the economy around it. Now, the ratchet is no longer. Is that correct? That's right. In the early 2000s, uh, the economy was coming back after the dot-com bust, say 2001, 2002. But Tabor's ratchet effect 
kept state budget spending at those recession-era levels. And at one point, it was so bad that the state was actually considering closing some public colleges. So there was a campaign, the public voted on this, and they weakened it. So now there's no ratchet anymore at the state level. And what it means now, 15 years after that, is the state budget will, for the most part, be able to recover along with the economy around it. It definitely makes me feel feel better about Colorado's prospects coming out of out of this pandemic. Okay, you don't sound like a small government guy, Ian. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably not. Probably not. Okay. Now, Nate, you mentioned that Tabor affects all levels of government. So, talk more about how this might play into cities and counties. Right, and I think that's where we're going to see the most variation here. Uh-huh. So. It, Many cities and counties and school districts, they've gotten permission over the years from voters to get rid of the ratchet effect. Nearly every school district in the state has done it. Something like four out of 178 have not. Is this is this uh, that weird word, debrucing? That's right. Yes, okay. it is. It, it's directly related to that. But the important part here is that uh, in many places across the state, voters have weakened Tabor for their local governments. Now, of course, I mean, we're entering a recession, all governments are making cuts. But the difference here is that the ones that still have to deal with the ratchet, they're making cuts that might have to become permanent because the ratchet won't let their budgets come back up very much. And that means once the economy comes back in those places, extra revenue will have to be sent back to taxpayers. That might happen in Jefferson County. They have not weakened Tabor. Um, and I recently spoke to Casey Ty. He's a Jefferson County commissioner. We definitely don't want to put people in a position where, where the taxes are too high. But at the same time, a lot of the services we're providing are needed. Okay, so to be clear, Nate, there are some governments that have not weakened Tabor locally. And that's why this could be uneven throughout the state. That's right. So, Nate, um, I'm also curious, how does... Tabor affect education in the state. I know there are other things out there in the Constitution that can have knock-on effects, I guess. Yes. So a lot of education funding in Colorado comes from uh, local property taxes, right? And there's another piece of the state Constitution called the Gallagher Amendment. It actually precedes Tabor by about 10 years. And the Gallagher Amendment was designed to keep residential property taxes really low And they did that by putting more of that burden on businesses. Mandates that taxes on homes make up about 45% of all property taxes paid in the state. And on the other side, businesses make up the other 55%. But the funky thing here is that when commercial property values go down, and that's going to happen here shortly, Mm. it means that residential property taxes are cut to keep that balance that's written into the Constitution. And because residential property taxes are cut, we're going to see tax revenues to schools fall pretty significantly. And Tabor enters the equation here because it prevents those property taxes from ever coming back up again without voter approval. Mm. So uh, we're going to see about $500 million in school funding cut uh, starting next year in the state. Property taxes also fund things like fire districts and counties, so it's going to be a pretty widespread effect here. Meanwhile, just to add a little more complication, there is a constitutional amendment specifically dealing with education funding and mandates 
uh, around how much there is. So that that's adding, Amendment 23 is adding to the picture here too, isn't it, Nate? That's right. Amendment 23 says that the state has to increase spending for education every year past about 20 years ago. And during the last recession, legislators figured out a way to sort of get around that called the, the negative factor. And I, I also won't get too deeply into that, <laughs> but just know that all these constitutional amendments have really complicated the work of balancing the state budget here. Gosh, I've, I've heard it described sometimes, Ian, as having your foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. So are there other ways for state lawmakers to, to work around Tabor as we go through recovery? Yes. I mean, Tabor's been around for nearly 30 years at this point, And in that time, lawmakers have figured out ways to get around parts of it. Uh, the biggest one is fees. Paper uh, applies to taxes. It doesn't apply to fees. So things like car registration, the state has figured out that it can really jack that up to help pay for roads because it can't get a transportation tax passed. So that could be an avenue that legislators use to try to raise more revenue if they feel like they need it. However, I think they might be a little bit careful because there actually might be a ballot measure this fall that would limit their ability to play around with fees, too. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, the debate over whether something is a tax or a fee. Like, this has been fought in the courts because Tabor is so exacting. Yeah, and to follow up with that, what are some positive things that Tabor does? Well, I mean, this whole time we've been talking about how Tabor is, you know, its whole point is to limit government growth, especially after a recession. And for a lot of people, that's a good thing. Like Tabor did pass by a popular vote. So at one point in Colorado's history in 1992, most people were sold on this being a good idea. Now Tabor supporters will say that it actually helps governments during tough times because with out Tabor, government would have been bigger. Politicians would have to make more draconian cuts now. So the counter to that, of course, is that Tabor has starved public goods like schools and infrastructure, and now it's about to get worse. So, you know, really, it does come down to whether you think government should be smaller and whether voters should have more power over what it does. Nate, what do, you, what do you think the overall takeaway should be then? Well, Tabor was designed to limit government growth, and clearly government's not growing right now, so we won't see the most obvious effects of this until the economy starts to get back into gear. Uh, on the state level, government will be able to do that pretty well because voters removed that ratchet effect 15 years ago. In some local governments, like Jefferson County, that ratchet effect is still there, and it's you know that, I think, is where we're going to see some... Uh, pretty significant effects of Tabor. And that property tax revenue hit to school districts and counties, that I think is a big piece that we're going to see all across the state. Ian, thanks so much for your questions and Nate for your answers. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. CPR's Nathaniel Minor and Ian McGinnis of Denver learn more about Tabor and the history of its author, Douglas Bruce, on CPR's Taxman podcast. What do you wonder about in this state? Ask us at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. It's hard to imagine a stranger graduation season than this one. We've seen car parades and virtual ceremonies. Here's what eighth graders heard at Book Cliff Middle School in Grand Junction from their teacher, Kayla Jones. Wear this time as a badge of honor. 
This was a difficult time in your life to be an eighth grader, a student, a person, a human, and you did it and you persevered. So wear this as a badge of honor moving forward in life and know that nobody else did what you did the way you did it. You are an individual, you are special, you are strong, you are capable, you are smart. That is teacher Kayla Jones from Book Cliff Middle School in Grand Junction. And like her students, we're all experiencing a new way of being. I wanted to share a few observations from over the weekend and see if they resonate with you. First off, I have been struggling to answer the question, how are you doing? It's just hard to sum up the weirdness of life. But the friend of a friend has an ingenious answer. He says, I'm COVID fine. Succinct while acknowledging our current reality. Tell me how you answer how you do in these days. You can tweet at CPR Warner or email Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Here's my second observation. I finally watched the movie Trumbo over the long weekend about Dalton Trumbo, the blacklisted screenwriter from Colorado. It stars Brian Cranston. Are you refusing to answer the question? Mr. Chairman, I will refuse to answer none of your questions. Are you now? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? May I introduce no. to evidence? No, you are out of order. My work. No, 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 no. By which no, no. you are making this determination. No. The chair will rule. Okay, why am I bringing this up? Well, as I watch the movie, I would see characters sitting close to each other or in crowded public spaces. And just for a second, I'd think, back away, you're going to spread the virus. How quickly our brains have adapted to this new way of life. Again, if this resonates as you're watching television, Tweet me about your own experience at CPR Warner. Once again, our email is coloradomatters at CPR.org. We'll be right back. This is CPR News. For some, the pandemic has made parenting even harder. Our son wanted to meet a friend of his to ride bikes. And I found myself getting him gloves and getting him a mask. And after he left, I just cried. I just made him afraid of spending time with his best friend since kindergarten. Last week, Colorado Matters dedicated an entire episode to parenting in the pandemic. Get Colorado Matters on demand wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. She never thought her book would be published. Now it's been honored with a Reading the West Award for Best Fiction. Sabrina and Karina is the literary debut for Denver author Kali Fajardo-Anstein. It's a collection of short stories, many inspired by her family's migration from southern Colorado to Metro Denver in search of opportunity. I spoke with Fajardo-Anstein when her book first came out. Each of these fictional stories centers around a different family. Why don't you start by telling us about your family and its roots? Sure, I'd love to. So my family's been in Colorado for more generations than I can count and more generations than we can trace because the records just simply disappear at a certain point. But in the 1920s and 30s, my family members migrated north from southern Colorado, and they settled in Denver because of their hopes for owning property, for working, for having better life experiences. That was just less possible in southern Colorado. Yeah, there wasn't as much going on, but also... um, They came from a family of eight children, and their father had abandoned them. And so the women had to come up to make their own way in Denver. How does this inform your sense of Denver today? Like, I wonder how often you think about those roots as you move about the city. Every day, every day of my life, I think about the fact that 
my great-grandmother's house is, you know, it's in Five Points. I walk by it. Sometimes I see it. I have a great-great-auntie whose home was on the west side, and sometimes I go down Galapago Street and I look at that house too. And I think about how the city's changed so much, but underneath those layers of change, my family has just always been here. This is our heartbeat. This is where we're from. Have you ever contemplated leaving, or have you ever left? For any- I Yes, I've left quite a bit. Um, I, I've sort of come back. I'm like a prodigal daughter of sorts. Okay. Um, I, I, so after I graduated from Metropolitan State University of Denver, I left for San Diego for one year and I experienced extreme homesickness. And I, I came back and I went to Wyoming and then I was in South Carolina and Key West, Florida and Durango, Colorado. I've, I've lived all over. But when my writing really started to take off for me, it's when I came back home to Denver and I really just started grinding it out and writing these books. I hear so often the advice to writers, write about what you know. So I wonder if coming back to the place that you know probably better than anyone or else, if that had some effect on your writing. I think in some ways going away helped strengthen my worldview about the place that I had come from. It helped me see some of the ugly side of Denver that I wasn't aware of before. Um, We have a legacy of segregation. We have a city that is very divided in some ways. And it wasn't until I had lived in the South that I started to notice that in my own place. Yeah, I mean, the history of redlining in Denver, where people and who those people were who could buy property. Yeah, definitely. For instance, Uh, the first story... In your collection, Kali, the collection is called Sabrina and Karina. We're talking about these short stories. The first is called Sugar Babies. It's set in southern Colorado. It's about parenthood. There's also a real innocence to it. Tell us what a sugar baby is and why you started the book this way. Uh, When I was in eighth grade, I was forced to raise a bag of sugar as if it were a real baby. And I thought about that for a long time because it was just so ridiculous. Like it couldn't (laughs) prepare me for raising a real life. And when I was in graduate school at the University of Wyoming, I went to an art talk one day and there was a man there and he was just talking about an archaeological dig site in his small town. And suddenly I had this whole image of a town in southern Colorado and I, I ran home to my apartment. I started furiously writing and there was this central image of the sugar baby and the sugar baby showed up and because of that I was able to create this whole plot around Sierra Cordova and her partner Robbie Martinez and they have to raise this little sugar baby as their whole town has been uplifted by this archaeological dig site from a Native American burial ground at the edge of town. Yeah, it strikes me that there were layers of generations in this story. So the sugar baby represents the innocence maybe of a new generation. Uh, Meanwhile, you have ancestors essentially being dug out of the ground. Yeah, and I think there's another there's another generational uh, link to these stories, too, is that Sierra has been abandoned by her own mother. And so she's trying to figure out how to become a mother with this inanimate object. But at the same time, she's thinking about the fact that her ancestors are beneath her feet and they're beneath Robbie's feet. And there's great grandparents and grandparents all around them just trying to tell them how to be good people and how to raise this child that's not even real. Did you have a good relationship with your mom? I had a, a good relationship with my mom and I also a complicated relationship with my own mother. Um, she's everywhere in this book. You know, she's all over these stories. My mother is an incredible woman. And I think because of our mirrored interest in our history and our heritage, sometimes we butted heads. Um, but now, later in life, I can see that everything I have is because of my mother. I am just haunted by the titular story. Uh, a warning to listeners, it contains some violence that I'm going to explain. Sabrina and Karina are cousins who grew up together in North Denver, then drifted apart. Karina, if I have this right, is a makeup artist at Macy's, and she gets a call at work one day. Sabrina 
has been strangled to death, and it will be Corina's job to hide the strangulation marks on her body with makeup. It made me wonder if you're ever haunted by your own work. That's a really interesting question and a question I haven't been asked before. And yeah, the answer is yes, I am. Sometimes when I write these stories that have to face violence head on because violence is something that's impacted women in my community, um, I can't get their voices out of my mind. I'll go and I'll try to take a shower and they're still talking to me and they still want me to tell their stories. So yeah, I am haunted by them. And, you know, just to do the research for Sabrina and Karina, I had to do a lot of I had to look up morgues. I had to look up bodies. I had to do a lot of things that I was very uncomfortable with, but I wanted to tell this story with authenticity and truth, and I wanted to honor these characters, especially women who are murdered and their cases go unsolved. And these are direct experiences you've had with people in your community. These stories grow out of the violence you've seen in, in parts of Denver. You know, violence that I've seen in my own life and my extended family, people I grew up with. Um, but also, I started doing historical research of cold cases of murdered women in Denver. And I was specifically looking for Chicanas. And so I was looking at any woman who had a Hispanic surname. And I was just appalled at what I was finding. Uh, there was one case in particular of a, a woman who came from Iowa and she wanted to be an actress in the 1950s. I was reading that they never found her body, but they found a black dog who had her hand in its mouth. You know, things like that really haunt me. And I want to honor these women and make sure that their lives are not forgotten. A lot of your protagonists have foils, another character who acts as a contrast. How are Sabrina and Corina, these two cousins, how are they different yeah, I think that's interesting because some people ask me, what, which one are you more like? Are you more Sabrina or are you more Karina? And I, I, you know, I never have an answer to that because to me, they both represent two sides of the same coin. It's sort of like the dark double. There's this twinning within them. Sabrina is, she's very impulsive. She's wild. She's an alcoholic that goes out and she has this fun, vivid life. And Karina is very closed off and she's working at Macy's and she's covering other women up with makeup all the time, which is in a way she's covering up her own personality because she's trying to hide who she truly is. And that thread of duality runs throughout the entire collection of short stories. Several stories poke fun at the term Highlands to, (laughs) to describe a Denver neighborhood on the north side of town. Uh, Help us understand why Highlands is a loaded term for folks in the city. Some folks. I, you know, it's just so funny because I grew up, uh, like I was at 35th and Newton for a while when I was growing up. And then I worked at Westside Books at 32nd and Lowell for a long time. And it was just, we never called it the Highlands. That was something that came about later. We called it the North Side. And what ends up happening when you change the name of the place, you sort of are gutting the identity of the people who are already there and have been calling it something for a very long time. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, I have jokes in here because it's, gentrification is a very sad, serious, topic, but also sometimes it's just hilarious, some of the things that happen. (laughs) We mentioned this migration of your family from southern Colorado to Denver. I understand you're working on a novel inspired by the first member of your family to relocate. 
Uh, this is your great grand aunt. Yeah, yeah. So the first woman in my family to leave in my novel, her name is Maria Josie, uh, but she had gotten pregnant. She was not married, and basically the family said, "We don't, you know, we don't want you around anymore." And so she said, "Okay, I'm going to go to Denver where there's work, and I can make my own way with my baby." And she started walking in the 1920s, and she hitchhiked along the way. Um, but when she got to Denver, she was fully able to express her true sexuality. She was a lesbian. She joined Dykes on Bikes later on. Oh. Um, she worked as a car mechanic. She carried trash. I mean, she did all these things that women were not supposed to be doing and were told they could not do. And she became the matriarch of the family and really took care of all the other siblings that came up in her wake. Thanks for sharing your family stories and your short stories with us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Denver author Kali Fajardo Einstein speaking with me in April of last year. Her debut book is a collection of short stories titled Sabrina and Karina. It was just honored with a Reading the West Book Award for Best Fiction by the Mountain and Plains Independent Booksellers Association. Finally today, we've been asking Colorado musicians to let us know how they're affected by COVID-19 cancellations. Because, of course, for many artists, live performances are a primary source of income and exposure. Well, today we meet Brett Dallas. He's a busker. His venue of choice, Denver's 16th Street Mall with a guitar in hand. He'd been doing this for more than a decade. Then the novel coronavirus hit. This entire lockdown slash quarantine situation has completely eliminated any performances that I might do on the mall. And not only is my income significantly impacted by that, but I've lost a lot of the connections that I've built up over the years just because of consistency. I mean, every week I'm down there and every week business owners and passersby expect to see me and hear me. Wow, it just occurred to me that the 16th Street Mall is blocks away from my office. I haven't been there in weeks. It's reasons like that that Dallas has had to adapt. He's decided to experiment with live streaming on Reddit and YouTube. In March, one of his performances became the top stream on Reddit's public access network, with almost 30,000 people watching live. It's all pretty overwhelming. I'm getting fans from all over the world, just as you might imagine, with any other global reach. Um, and it's been a lot of fun, and I've, I've made a lot of new friends. Um, I do still miss the in-person experience of performing in, in, in public. You don't get the same feedback and interaction online. I mean, I still get to chat with some of my viewers, but it's just not the same. busker Brett Dallas during a recent live stream on YouTube. If you're a Colorado musician affected by COVID-19 cancellations, we want to hear your story. Email coloradomatters at cpr.org. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.